the book of Ephesians. Chap- Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are the members of his body. For this cause... A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of God. We pray his blessing upon the reading of his word. Let's bow in prayer. Father, what a day... What a great day today that we have to enjoy, to reflect upon the principles of biblical fatherhood. Lord, we realize that there are none here perfect, and because we're not perfect in mind, body, or spirit, we realize that in areas of our life we may fail in our responsibilities as being good fathers. But thank you, Father, for the love that you have given to each and every one of us, that love which will uh, help us to deal with our flaws and our shortcomings, that will help us to deal with our failures. And so, Lord God, because of that love, uh, we are motivated to do the best that we are able to do in loving our wives, loving our children as you love us. We pray your blessing upon uh, fathers here today and grandfathers and great-grandfathers, not only here in the sanctuary, but also uh, those uh, all across the country. Father, today will be a blessed day for them. And as we look to the scriptures and we outline those principles which you deem are uh, important,
important in godly fatherhood. I pray we will take them to heart and that, Lord, we will embrace them so that as we meet with our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, Lord God, we can uh, nurture them and we can draw them to Jesus Christ who gives us the ability to lead them as fathers. Bless our worship today, that it may be pleasing in your sight, David and the worship team, as they lead us. May everything said and done be to honor and to glorify your son, Jesus Christ, because it's in his name I pray. Amen. Billy Graham once said, a good father is one of the most unsung, unpraised, unnoticed and yet one of the most valuable assets in our society. A good father is one of the most unsung, unpraised, unnoticed, and yet one of the most valuable assets in our society. Today is Father's Day. It's the day we uh, recognize fatherhood in our country. Some of you uh, are not fathers, and that's okay. Some of you are fathers, some of you are grandfathers, some of you are great-grandfathers, some of you are all the above. But I want to ask a question. Are you a good one? Are you a good one? Do your kids think that you're a good father? Does your wife think you are a good father? How does a man know if he's a good father? Fathers are like snowflakes. No two are exactly, perfectly alike. They're as diverse as the fish in the ocean. They come in all shapes and sizes and colors. They have distinct backgrounds and traditions and experiences. They embrace different attitudes and philosophies of fatherhood and family. Fathers are just fathers. Wherever you find them, in whatever culture you find them, uh, whatever language they may speak, they're different from each other within the same culture, even within the same family groups. They're different. In uh, taking a look at today's sermon and in preparing for the sermon today, I did some research on those qualities and characteristics that people think um, incorporate or come into a person's life that make him a great father. If you have your sermon notes, you'll note those. If you didn't get your sermon notes, they're out there on the foyer table. Don't everybody rush out there at once. But there are some 21 different characteristics, 21 different characteristics that people think make a truly great father or grandfather or great-grandfather. I'm not going to read through all of those. Uh, I'm not going to insult your intelligence by reading through them, but it's an interesting um, list of things that people today believe uh, should go into making a great father. As I read through the list, uh, I asked myself, um, did my father embrace all of these characteristics? And the answer is no. My father did not embrace all 
all of these characteristics. And if you were to ask my daughters or if you were to ask my wife if I embraced all of these characteristics uh, in raising our children, they would say no. Uh, I did not embrace all of these characteristics, and I dare say that any man would or could embrace all of these characteristics. For the most part, being a good father is taught. Being a good father is taught. And quite often it is taught through the experiences and through the examples that we have had in the course of our growing up. In the Bible, there are a number of examples of fatherhood given to us. Some are good, some are bad, all of them are flawed, but they all have lessons to teach us about being a good father and what goes into being a good father. I want to focus my thoughts this morning on Job, the great patriarch of the Old Testament, Job. He's one of the earliest patriarchs of the Old Testament, and you'll find his story in the book of Job. I want you to turn there, if you will, please, to chapter 1, and we will begin our look at what the Bible outlines as being a great father. Job chapter 1. Now as you're turning there, uh, let me just simply state that uh, Job is uh, probably the earliest book written in the Bible. I believe that Moses wrote the story of Job, probably learned about this man while he was 40 years in the Sinai desert tending sheep for his father-in-law Jethro. I believe that Job predates all of the patriarchs that we have in Scripture. There is no mention of Israel. There is no mention of Jerusalem. There is no mention of Abraham. There is no mention of the temple. Because Job predates all of those things. I believe that Job most likely lived in the days of Abraham even though they may not have known each other. When you think of Job, what's one of the first things that come to mind when you think of Job? Pardon? He lost everything. What else? Pardon? Suffering. Faithful. Anything else come to mind? Patient. Okay. Usually when we think of Job, one of the first things that comes to mind is suffering. No man suffered like Job in Scripture. He's the poster child for suffering. And yet... Job was a model husband and father. I want to paint his portrait for you this morning as we look in a few verses in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. 
First, I want you to note that Job was a real man. Job was a real man. He was not some fictional person or some ideal created in the mind of some storyteller. He was flesh and blood. There are a lot of Old Testament people who will say that the story of Job is an allegory. It is a story that's been told to uh, underscore or to emphasize certain biblical principles or spiritual truths. Like there are a number of Old Testament people that believe that the book of Jonah is an allegory. And there are others who believe that the story of, uh, of, of Noah and the flood is an allegory. I do not believe that these are simply stories that underscore certain biblical principles. I believe Job was a real man. Job was flesh and blood. He had intellect. He had desires. He had emotions. He had his good days and his bad days. He experienced joy and peace and happiness, but he also experienced physical, emotional, and mental pain in his life. Note in verse 2, Job chapter 1 and verse 2, Job was a family man. He had one wife, he had ten children, and he also had everything that goes along with maintaining a household. Investing one's time, energy, money, effort in making the family, making the home life a respectable home life. He provided for his children, for his wife. He also experienced the headaches and the heartaches that go along with family life. In verse 3, we're told that Job was a businessman. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 oxen, 500 jennies, a bunch of servants, so on and so forth. He was the wealthiest man in the East, the Bible tells us. In many ways, Job is a lot like us today. He was busy. He was a busy man. He was a busy family man. He was a busy businessman. He was busy. And when he wasn't busy, he was busy. He was always busy, caring for the affairs of his life, the lives of his family members, his servants, and certainly busy taking care of his business. But he was also different from many fathers today in that Job lived a balanced life. He lived a balanced life. He had the ability to be able to care for and to invest his life in his family as well as in his business. He did not prefer one over the other. He did not emphasize one to the neglect of the other. Job had a balanced life. He was equally involved in his family as he was in his business. Job could do what Job did 
because of who Job was. He could do what he did because of who he was. Job was a righteous man. Job was a godly man. Listen carefully. A man does what a man is. A man does what a man is. Don't ever forget that. Unless God intervenes in a man's life, he will do what his character naturally dictates. Unless God intervenes in a man's life, he will do what his character naturally dictates. Again, note in verse 1, Job was a blameless, upright man who feared God and who turned away from evil. To be blameless means to have moral integrity. Moral integrity. A man of moral integrity always seeks to do what is right and refuses to do what is wrong. Job was also upright, which means that he was a straight arrow. He was honest, he was just, and he was fair in everything and with everyone. He was also a man who turned away from evil, which means he refused to participate in anything sinful or rebellious toward God. He would not engage in evil thoughts. He would not engage in evil speech. He would not engage in evil activity. His heart, his mind, and his hands were pure before God. He turned away from evil. He was a man who feared God. That means he honored God in all things, in his personal life and in his public life, in his family life and in his business life. Job was not a husband and father who simply believed what God said was right. He practiced what God said was right. He practiced the principles of righteousness and holiness in his personal life in his home life, and out on the job in his business life. He was a godly man before his wife and his children, before his servants, his employees. He was a godly man before everyone. These characteristics made Job not only the wealthiest man in his area, but also the greatest of all of the peoples of the East, a man worthy of God's admiration and Satan's attacks. Because any individual who seeks to be a godly person, a godly husband, a godly father, a godly son, a godly daughter, a godly brother, a godly sister, a godly wife, a godly mother... God will take notice of that individual, but Satan will take notice of that person as well. And Satan will do all that he can do 
to cut the, the rug out from under an individual who maintains that kind of life. He will do all that he can to stand opposed to that person, to ruin that person's life, to ruin that person's family, to ruin that person's business. And we have that recorded in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. A man does what a man is. And unless God intervenes in a man's life, he will do what his character naturally dictates. If a boy is mean and spiteful and hateful in his younger years, it's a good bet that he will be so as a man. If he's selfish and egocentric before marriage, he will be selfish and egocentric in marriage. If he's an immoral person before he says, I do, he will be an immoral person after he says, I do. If he's lazy now, he will be lazy later on. If you want your husband and your father to be a godly man, then don't marry a godless one. If you want the father of your children, if you want to share the rest of your life with a man who is godly and righteous and holy, then don't marry someone who's not these things. I know far too many women who go into marriage realizing the characteristics of their husband as not being quite admirable, and yet their belief is, well, I'll change him after we're married. Be in love, but don't be foolish. Love may be blind, but it ought not to be stupid. There are three reasons why I believe and why I believe that the Scripture tells us that Job was the best kind of husband and father. First of all, note in verse 4, he lived his faith at home. Job lived his faith at home. The scripture says his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. Notice Job had seven sons. And every day of the week, every day of the week, each son would host a dinner party in his home. And he would invite all of his brothers and all of his sisters and their families to be with them that evening in the home for a dinner party. It was not a wild or immoral or an ungodly party because Job's children honored the values that Job demonstrated at home. They embraced those values in their own lives. Even when they were grown and out of the home and out on their own, they reflected the values that Job instilled within them when they were home. So every day, the family was having dinner at a family member's house every single day. And they enjoyed being together and they enjoyed fellowshipping together. And they enjoyed eating with each other and celebrating life with each other together. 
father came to me one afternoon not a thousand years ago or a million miles away and he was distraught over his children he and his wife were educated people they were professional people and they were very very busy in their work they were affluent providing practically everything that their children wanted they professed faith in Jesus Christ and they attended church occasionally but they never got involved in church life they would go to church but they didn't grow in church they were inconsistent in living their Christian faith at home the children who lived at home at that time were spoiled hateful disrespectful despised going to church and had become involved in self-destructive behavior as he sat in my office and as he shared all of these things with me I listened I didn't interject any thoughts I just listened to him as he poured his heart out and as he began to cry he said to me I don't know what to do anymore and then with a big sigh he said I've just given up on them I've just given up on them what a sad commentary on fatherhood to give up on your kids notice verse 5 and when the days of the feast had run their course job would send and consecrate them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all for job said it may be that my children have sinned and cursed god in their hearts thus job did continually job never gave up on his children he never gave up on his wife he never gave up on his family even when his kids were grown and out of the house and on their own job never gave up on them this is the second reason job was the best kind of husband and father note the text again verse 5 once a week every week before breakfast before scanning the newspaper before reviewing the Wall Street Journal before checking his day planner before listening to his voicemail or reading his emails before he went off to the office Job worshiped the Lord and in his worship he prayed for his children and their families he offered a sacrifice to the Lord for each and every one of them not because it was his religious duty but because he loved the Lord and he loved his children he brought them before the Lord every week in case they had sinned against God how many of us do that for our children and for our grandchildren and for our great-grandchildren 
even for those members of our family who are out on their own and have families of their own? Do we still bring them before the Lord? Do we still pray for them? Do we still pour out our heart before God for our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren? How many of us make that kind of investment for the life and the health and the well-being of our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids. Job was a father to his family, but he was also the priest of his family. And he sanctified each one of his sons and daughters every week in his personal worship before the Lord. You know, it's, it's easy to a degree, it's easy to be religiously inclined in your home when things are firing on all cylinders, isn't it? I mean, when it's smooth sailing and there are no bumps in the road and everything seems to fall into place and to fit together, it's, it's really kind of easy to say, thank you, Lord, for my kids. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my husband. Thank you, Lord, that everything is hunky-dory. Thank you that everything is as smooth as silk. But what about when things begin to seize up? What about when things begin to misfire in your home? A man does what a man is. And unless God intervenes in a man's life, he will do what his character naturally dictates. It's in these times when things go south that our true character begins to shine. There's never more, this, this is never more evident. It's never more evident than when your world implodes and caves in on you. Now you know the story of Job. He lost his business. He lost his support staff. He lost his income. He lost his house. He lost his children. And he lost all of these things all in one day within minutes of each other. Talk about your Black Monday. Some men, if that were to happen to them, they'd eat a bullet. Some would crawl into a bottle. Some men would pack up and leave. Others would put out a vendetta. I'm going to get those who did this to me. Many people would and often do blame God. And they would curse Him for allowing such things to happen to Him. But not Job. Not Job. Job was the best kind of husband and father because number three he stayed faithful to the Lord look at verses 20 21 and 22 then Job arose tore his robe shaved his head Sean 
and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Job worshipped God in the midst of his tragedy and his grief. That's a godly man. That's a man who hurts. That's a man whose heart can be broken. That's a man whose mind may grow numb. That's a man whose body aches with the pain of the suffering that he is going through. But that's a man who still holds on to God. Because he knows in the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of his grief, in the midst of his pain, God will always hold on to him. In chapter 2, we note that Job lost his health. God permitted Satan to touch Job's body and to take away his health. And when he lost his health, his wife, bless her heart, his wife, who was equally distressed over everything that had happened, when she came to him and said, curse God and die, Job said to her in verse 10, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Notice Job's attitude toward his wife. I don't believe that Mrs. Job was being spiteful. I don't believe that she was being hateful. I don't believe that she was being an ungodly woman. She was, she was in pain and she was in mourning as well. And she sees her husband broken in his health, broken in his mind, broken in his heart. And she believed that the only thing that could relieve his pain and suffering was to die. Get it over with. So this was her answer to the issue. Job, You know that if you curse God, God will take your life. Why don't you just go ahead and do that and be done with all of the suffering? She couldn't stand to see him in such pain. And she wanted him to have that relief and that release. Job didn't argue with her. He didn't condemn her. He didn't slap her around like some men would their wife who had such a response to their situation. And he certainly didn't take her advice. No. A man will do what his character dictates. Man, the man Job was a godly man. And in the midst of all that was unbearable to him, he did what a godly man would do. Job was a grieving man. But Job was also a godly man. He was in shock. But he didn't sin. His heart was broken. But not his faith. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips, the scripture tells us. 
Why was that? Because Job was a godly man who lived a godly life in his home. He wasn't afraid to live his faith before God and his children. He didn't restrict his worship to the prayer closet, but he practiced it before his entire household, including his servants. He was not ashamed or embarrassed of his love for the Lord, and he raised his family in the afterglow of that same love. Job prayed for his family. He sacrificed for them. He brought them before the Lord every week as he brought the Lord before them every day. He thanked God for them. He never gave up on them, even when they were grown and out on their own. He never involved himself in every aspect of their lives, but he did involve them in his faith every day of their lives. When Job lost his family and everything else, he remained faithful to God. He remained firmed in his faith. He remained fixed on the Lord. He was a real man, a family man, a businessman. But above all else, he was a godly man. Now, you may be a wife or a young lady thinking about getting married or maybe just married or maybe you're a wife, been married for some time, and you may be thinking, I wish I had a husband like that. Or maybe you're a son or a daughter. And you may be thinking, I wish I had a dad like that. Well, if that's what you're thinking and if that's what you're wishing, then dear friends, I'd ask you to do one thing. Pray for the one that you have. Pray for the husband that you have. Pray for the father that you have. Be to him what you long for him to be to you. If you feel that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence, maybe you should get busy taking care of the grass on your own side of the fence. Robert Backman, in closing. Robert Backman wrote these words, quote, The name Father. The name Father is the noblest title a man can be given. The man, the name Father is the noblest title a man can be given. It's more than a biological role. It signifies a patriarch, a leader, an exemplar, a confidant, a teacher, a hero, and a friend. That's what a father is supposed to be. And that's why we celebrate fatherhood today. All of these qualities that you instilled within Job are qualities that you've had throughout all eternity. And they're qualities, Lord, that we enjoy today in our relationship to you. Bless this family that has lost a husband and a father. And others, Lord, in our church family who have gone on to be with you and leave family behind. Temper their sorrow and their grief with joy in knowing that to be absent from this body is to be present with you. 
and bless those members of our church family who are struggling with health issues, who may be in uh, facilities, uh, skilled nursing facilities, or even in the hospital now. Bless their families as well. Give them, Father, courage. Give them peace. Give them joy in knowing that you are the great physician and you're watching over them. Now as we leave the house, bless us as we go. May we enjoy this day as we celebrate fatherhood because we ask it in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all of God's people said. God bless you and have a great day. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.